Hello and welcome to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.10, A War Worth Fighting For. Last time we discussed Che Guevara's time in Guatemala and his reaction to the 1954 Guatemalan coup, which overthrew President Jacobo Arbenz. This time we will discuss Che's time in Mexico and his fateful meeting with Fidel Castro. Up to this point in the podcast, we have only briefly discussed Cuba and Castro. Next episode will be dedicated entirely to introducing both. For now, the main things that you need to know is that Cuba was in an unstable political position since Vigencio Bautista had seized power in a military coup in 1952. Fidel Castro was a prominent youth leader of the opposition party and was educated in law. He came to international attention by leading a failed attack on the Moncada barracks in 1953 in an attempt to jumpstart a revolution. He was in prison for a time, but upon his release, he will flee to Mexico to regroup and relaunch his revolutionary ambitions. Ernesto Che Guevara would arrive in Mexico in mid-September 1954. Che had felt that after his time in Guatemala, the safest place for a man of his political ideology would be the liberal Mexico. He figured he could fly under the radar, make some money, and then be off to Paris to finally see Europe. Little did he know that he would instead be meeting the man who would define the rest of his life. Che's financial situation was as delicate as ever, but he figured he had enough money to survive two months if he did not spend extravagantly. The first contact he looked up was a friend of his father who worked as a screenwriter for Mexican films. He briefly flirted with the idea of being a film extra and having that jumpstart his unrealistic artistic ambitions of becoming an actor. After he met his father's friend, they visited the Aztec pyramids. Che spent half his money on a 35mm camera to document the journey. Guevara quickly abandoned the idea of using his father's friend as a contact as he started to get to know him. The two argued about politics extensively. Che could not stand that the man seemed happy about what had happened in Guatemala. He thanked the man for bringing him to see the Aztec ruins, but explained that he wanted to set off on his own to explore his professional pursuits. In a letter home to his father, Che explained that he had decided to maintain a certain degree of independence as long as the paces you sent me held out. It certainly was lucky that Che had a bourgeois father to help him continue his proletariat life. The first days of independence saw little in the way of progress. A common expression of it is not what you know, but who you know, is especially true in the medical field. The Mexican hospitals were not familiar with Dr. Pisani's clinic, and he did not have a friend like Alberto Granado to vouch for his skills. It became especially difficult because he did not want to sign a long-term contract as he wanted to keep his options open, so instead he lingered once again. Though Mexico did not have the requirement to join in the medical union the way that Guatemala did, which did provide a ray of hope. Throughout his job search, he was stuck trying to come to terms with the Guatemalan coup and the way that the media's portrayal did not reflect his reality. With his friends scattered to the winds, he had no one to hash these issues out with in person. Instead, he wrote to his friends and family back in Argentina about what really happened. Luckily for us, many of those letters still exist and have been made available to historians or have been published in memoirs. This gives us a great window in which to explore the mindset of Dr. Guevara. In his letters, he railed against the fake news that the newspapers were printing as basic Yankee propaganda. He insisted that President Arbenz was a good man. In a letter to a friend, he complained about the false revisionism that painted the Arbenz administration as a power-hungry regime. He explained that there were no murders or anything like it. There should have been a few firing squads early on. He admired the Arbenz administration. He mourned their loss, 
but he was determined not to repeat his mistakes. In much the same way Che had used Notas de Vieja to reflect on his journeys and come to grips with his new outlook on life, he used his letters to express lessons he had learned. He declared in a letter to his mother that he was completely convinced that political half-measures can mean nothing other than the antechamber to treason. The experience of watching the revolutionary government crumble before his eyes convinced him of the needs for full measures. If he were ever in charge, he would not settle or show leniency. The whole experience convinced Che that the world was barreling towards another world war. This world war would pit the United States against communism, and in that war he knew that he would gladly fight on the side of communism. The months passed slowly in Mexico City. He became accustomed to the various flow of the city and became desperate for money. Che decided to put his new camera to work. He realized that people would pay to have their portraits taken in various parks and plazas throughout the city. Snapping photos of various tourists gave him a valuable experience using the camera, but did not provide a consistent paycheck. He finally found a more stable position as a night watchman, which allowed him to continue his photography during the day. He upgraded from taking portraits to a position as a photo correspondent for an Argentine news agency. None of these positions were particularly well-paying, nor were they in his field, but they took care of the bills and put food on the table. With a form of income secured, but still having several days free, Che decided the best way to find contact within the Mexican medical community was through volunteering. He found a volunteer post at the General Hospital and dedicated his free time to impressing his co-workers. The decision to volunteer was quite fortuitous as it led to an unplanned reunion. Nico Lopez, the Cuban whom Che had befriended in Guatemala, visited the hospital for a friend who was suffering from allergies. As you may recall, allergies were Dr. Guevara's specialty. Nico saw Guevara and happily called out for El Che Argentino. The reunion immediately rekindled their friendship. Nico had been ordered to relocate to Mexico City as the release of his leader, Fidel Castro, became imminent. Loyal to a fault, Nico had made for Mexico City as soon as he had been given travel clearance. Mexico City had become the unofficial home base for the as-yet-unnamed political movement led by Fidel Castro. Mexico City was the perfect location for their headquarters. The somewhat recent revolution, generally dated 1910 to 1920, created a political environment far more sympathetic to political exiles, and unlike Guatemala, Mexico was strong enough to stand up to outside pressures. Combined with its proximity to Cuba, it created the perfect location. Though perhaps even more important was the fact that Mexico City was the location where Maria Antonia Gonzalez lived. She volunteered her apartment to be the hub for all revolutionary activity. The majority of orders were routed through the apartment, and every Cuban who lived in or visited Mexico City traveled through her apartment. Nico introduced Che to several other Cubans as a trusted and sympathetic friend. One in particular was a man named Jose Sanchez. Sanchez had just arrived in Mexico City after fighting in Costa Rica and needed a place to live. Che suggested that Sanchez come live at the pension house with him. Sanchez accepted and the proximity of their living arrangement allowed for the opportunity for Sanchez to regale Che with stories. Like the other Cubans, Sanchez painted Cuba as a beautiful country that was being ruined by corruption. Much of it Che had heard before, but it took on a new meaning when Sanchez also described how he had fought in Costa Rica during the invasion of 1955 that was led by Nicaraguan President Somoza in an attempt to place Rafael Calderon back in power. The invasion occurred and failed in January of 1955. Che admired the conviction of the man and in turn gained his trust. Sanchez brought Che to the apartment of Maria Antonia to show him the state of the movement. 
Che immediately made a good impression on Maria and even struck up a friendship with her husband, the Mexican wrestler Dick Ventreno. Before long, Che's presence at the apartment was as accepted as any Cubans. Che even hired two Cubans to assist with developing photos for his news agency job. In addition to being the movement's headquarters, Maria's apartment became the base at which Che and his employees developed the photos, which was convenient considering that the pension house certainly was not large enough to provide space for a darkroom. He visited the apartment almost daily, and each time he was there, he engaged in talks with the men. He discovered that every single one of them were absolutely loyal to Fidel Castro and fully committed to the revolutionary fight. The more he learned about their plight and their leader, the more Che, too, became just another individual desperately awaiting the return of Fidel Castro. Due to Hilda Gadea's involvement with the Guatemalan government, she had been held longer than Che, but when she had the opportunity to leave, she made for Mexico City. Once she arrived in Mexico City, the two resumed their somewhat on-and-off relationship. Hilda's memoirs and Che's journal entries depict two confused lovers who did not know where they wanted to be in five years. At times, there were sweeping declarations of a pending marriage, and at times, the conviction of settling for a platonic relationship. Both loved spending time together, at the very least, and they figured if they were already together, they might as well also satisfy their physical cravings. This led to arguments, disagreements, and hurt feelings sometimes, but those moments only created the chance to make up and do it all again. Plus, Hilda had money, which Jay did not. Despite being an economist, Hilda was never one to say no to a loan. The distance from his family allowed Che to finally come to terms and declare to his mother that he was an avowed communist. He had not yet joined the communist party of any country, but he firmly believed in the justness of the communist. His mother replied in alarm. The last thing she wanted to see was her baby boy killed because of some dumb political theory. The following is an excerpt from Che's response to her alarm. That which you so fear is reached by two roads, positively by being directly convinced, or negatively, after deception with everything. I reached it by the second route, only to immediately become convinced that one has to follow the first. The way in which the gringos treat America had been provoking in me a growing indignation, but at the same time I studied the theory behind the reasons for their actions and I found it scientific. Afterward came Guatemala. At which moment I left the path of reason and took on something akin to faith, I can't tell you even approximately because the path was very long and with a lot of backward steps. In April of 1955, Che attended an allergy conference in Lyon. He presented one of his research papers. The paper was well received and earned him the attention of Salazar Malin, who was a leading Mexican allergy specialist. Dr. Malin offered Che an internship at the General Hospital that included a small monthly salary, along with room, board, and laundry. This new job would provide for his basic needs and give him a useful entry on his resume. The timing was also remarkably convenient. Che's job as a photojournalist had come to an abrupt end when the news agency decided to close their Mexican office following the closing ceremonies of the 1955 Pan American Games, which were hosted in Mexico City from March 12th to March 26th, 1955. Hilda received and accepted a job offer with the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean. She moved into a new apartment with her friend Lucia Velasquez. She had secured her economic stability, but also wanted to secure her romantic life. Hilda offered to marry and maintain Che. He declined the offer. He still was not ready to commit to anything that would tie him down long term. He did, however, accept the invitation to move in with her. 
Together they slipped into the familiar routine of work, study, and domesticity. The study included a range of topics, but the main focus was economic theory. Jay had been convinced by the philosophical merits of a Marxist society, and had already carved out how he would function as a provider of social medicine, but he still needed to master the logistics of a Marxist economy. His studies included the works of Adam Smith and John Maynard Keynes, but expanded to other works. He had long admired Joseph Stalin, but as he studied, he began to wonder if Mao Zedong was the better example to follow for Latin America due to their agricultural similarities. As Chase settled into domestic life, President Fulgencio Batista of Cuba had decided Fidel Castro was no longer a threat. He wanted to show the citizens of Cuba his magnanimous side. In honor of Mother's Day, he released those who attacked the Makanda barracks. On May 15, 1955, Fidel exited the prison to much media fanfare. Rather than contritely appreciating the gesture, he vowed to continue his struggle. Nico Lopez and some of the other Cubans went to Havana to see their freed leader. It is likely that Nico first told the Castro brothers about his friend El Che Argentino during one of these meetings. Fidel would formally start his own political party in opposition to Batista while stepping away from the Orthodox Party of Cuba which was the official opposition party at the time. He gave inflammatory radio interviews to incite rage, but after only a month, Fidel had overstayed his welcome in Havana. He decided to flee Havana after claiming that agents of Batista were sent to kill him and his brother Raul. On June 24, 1955, ten days after Che's 27th birthday, Raul Castro arrived in Mexico City and made straight for Maria Antonia's apartment. Che had been tipped off that the number two man would soon be arriving. Che waited patiently to meet him. By all accounts, the two hit it off immediately. Unlike his brother, Raul was a member of Cuba's Communist Party and shared many aspects of Che's personal philosophy. Che invited Raul to dinner at Hilda's apartment, and after that first meal, Raul became a common figure at the apartment. Hilda reports that Raul visited the house at least once a week, and Che saw him nearly every single day. As a brief aside before we continue the story, to this point in the narrative, we have not discussed the Soviet Union much at all. There is often a debate centered around the question of just when the Soviets became involved in the Cuban Revolution. As I very briefly mentioned in episode 1.5, there is a conspiracy theory that states that Fidel Castro was a Soviet agent as far back as the Bogotazo riots in 1948. A second theory states that the Soviets did not get involved with the Cuban Revolution until 1955. My personal opinion is that the Soviets took advantage of the situation once it happened and were not the ones to orchestrate the revolution, but I would be doing a very poor job of giving you the complete picture if I did not at least mention the possibility of Soviet involvement at this point of the story. This theory has traction because Raul actually did meet a Soviet agent while he was in Mexico City. Raul even introduced his newfound friend, Che Guevara, to that Soviet agent. The agent was a Soviet foreign ministry official by the name of Nikolai Lenov. Lenov will pop into our story from time to time as he will join the KGB in 1958 and specialize in covering the United States and Latin America. His rise through the KGB has led some to believe that the meeting of the Cuban revolutionaries was more than coincidence. It becomes especially convincing because such a meeting was against official Soviet policy. The official story is that Lenov did little more than speak with Raul and Che. He answered several questions about Soviet life from Che, and even gave Che three pieces of Soviet literature. Chanov, which was about the Soviet Civil War, Thus Steel is Forged, by Lotrovsky, and A Man Complete, 
about a World War II aviation hero. When Che picked up the books at the Soviet Embassy, that was reportedly the last time they spoke in Mexico, but they will speak again on the other side of the revolution. Nikolai Lenov is still involved in politics to this day. As a superior officer, he would mentor a young KGB agent by the name of Vladimir Putin. After retiring from the KGB, Lenov would go into politics, and after Putin was elected president, Lenov would become involved with the Kremlin. The theory presents many interesting subplots, but for now we will end our aside. Fidel Castro would arrive in Mexico City on July 7, 1955. The exact date when Che met Castro is unknown, but it was in the first few days Castro was in the city. Che would describe it as a political occurrence having met Fidel Castro, and Fidel would later say that his initial opinion of Che was that the Argentine was an even more advanced revolutionary than he was. Though by the time the two had met, Fidel was, and would always remain, a much better politician. The two met at Maria Antonia's apartment after both Raul and Nico Lopez vouched for the outsider. The friendship and mutual respect was immediate. After talking for some time, Fidel invited Che and Raul up to dinner. It was there, on that first night together, that Fidel laid out his tentative plan for a guerrilla resistance movement in Cuba. He invited Che to be the movement's doctor and fellow revolutionary. Che accepted on the spot. He became the third confirmed member the first outside of the two Castros. All of Che's adventures through Latin America, all of his days as the daredevil asthmatic youth, all of his scholastic pursuits, and each world event that had passed him as a passive observer had led him here. Throughout his life, he had never wanted to commit himself to something that he did not wholeheartedly believe. Finally, Fidel had provided him with the cause and the war worth fighting. Che excitedly returned to the apartment he shared with Hilda and told her about Fidel Castro. Che told her that Nico was right in Guatemala when he told us that if Cuba had produced anything good since Marte, it was Fidel Castro. He will make the revolution. It's only someone like him I could go all out for. Che felt compelled to support the Cuban revolution, not just because he could help free the Cubans from an oppressive dictator, not just so he could be at the ground level and attempt to guide the revolution down a socialist path, not just so that he could help topple someone he felt was in the pocket of the United States and thereby anger his Yankee enemies. No, more important than all of that, Che felt compelled to support Fidel Castro. All throughout history we are given examples of men and women who have been inspired to unbelievable feats through the coordination and force of will of one almost larger than life leader. In this story, that leader is Fidel Castro. Whether people have since supported or cursed Fidel Castro, no one can deny just how charismatic of a leader he was. In Che's almost hero-worship-like description of Fidel to Hilda, he left one vital piece of information out. He did not tell her that he had volunteered to join Fidel's army. Instead, Che told her that he had invited Fidel to dinner. Hilda could tell just how important this dinner would be based on Che's reaction to Fidel Castro. She knew that the dinner had to be perfect, and so she set about preparing. In her book, Hilda would describe that night thusly. When Fidel talked, his eyes shone with the passion and revolutionary zeal, and one could see why he could command the attention of listeners. It was good that she found him just as charismatic as Che did, for when Hilda asked Fidel why he was in Mexico, rather than in Cuba, Fidel's answer lasted for four hours. By the time he left for the evening, she was thoroughly impressed with the future leader of Cuba. After dinner, Che excitedly asked her what she thought of Fidel. She confirmed that she thought Castro to be a very impressive man. 
Hilda's approval was followed by the proud announcement from Che that he had joined Fidel's movement, which had now been named the 26th of July movement in honor of the Mankata barracks attack. Hilda was not enthused the way Che had thought she would be. She was worried, and she realized it was time to tell Che about the secret she had just learned. She was pregnant. Not much is known about Che's immediate reaction to the pregnancy. We do know that Hilda did not ask him to abandon his commitment to Fidel, and that Che never offered. But we also do not know if he was happy that he would soon be a father. In his own words, Che decided to do the honorable thing and propose marriage. While the baby was conceived out of wedlock, he did not want the baby to be born that way. However, it seems he knew the marriage would not last forever. He was not ready to give up his sexual promiscuity for Hilda. The couple would get married, and they would have a little girl, who was named after her mother. Che would forever call her Hildita. Hilda would stay loyal to Che throughout the Cuban Revolution, but Che would not repay the favor. Hilda and Che would get married on August 18, 1955, but would later divorce in 1959. Rule attended the small ceremony, but Fidel believed his actions were being monitored by Cuba's secret police, and he wanted to lay low. He would arrive at the small reception held afterward and happily celebrate the new union. When Fidel left on a fundraising tour through the United States, Che dedicated himself to the goal of getting into shape. He knew that the life of a revolutionary guerrilla would be a physically taxing one, and he was all too aware of his own frailness. The last thing he wanted was for his asthma to slow him down once he entered the human area of the Sierra Maestra mountain range in Cuba. His strict training regimen consisted mainly of hiking and climbing the mountains around Mexico City. He needed to build up his endurance before the group trainings took place so that he could hide the fact that he had asthma. He did not want to come across as weak to the masculine Cubans. In January and February of 1956, Fidel assembled his revolutionaries into groups and assigned them to different safe houses throughout the city. He hired combat trainers to whip his men into shape by having them take marathon walks through the city and hike the trails on the outskirts. They also learned basic hand-to-hand -hand combat and self-defense. A select group, including Che, were selected to start target practice at the Los Camitos firing range. Slowly, this ragtag group of revolutionaries were becoming a force to be reckoned with. The trainer who Fidel Castro hired was a U.S. Army Korean War veteran named Miguel Sanchez. Sanchez is quoted as saying the following, Ernesto Guevara attended 20 regular shooting sessions, an excellent shooter with approximately 650 bullets fired, excellent discipline, excellent leadership abilities, physical endurance excellent, some disciplinary press-ups for small errors at interpreting orders. To reward Che's hard work and because of his seriousness, Fidel chose to appoint Che as leader of one of the safe houses. This caused resentment at first, as is Che's very apparent closeness with the Castros. The other members of the movement saw Che as an outsider. Castro had been careful not to recruit a mosaic of nationalities, but Che was an exception. Che replied to the resentment by working harder to perform even better. In May of 1956, Fidel was ramping up his efforts to move the revolution out of the planning and preparation stage. He had promised to make his move in 1956, and early indications seemed to state that he wanted to launch his revolution on the three-year anniversary of the Moncada barracks attack. One of the steps Fidel took was to ask each of his trainees to evaluate their fellow revolutionaries. The resentment had apparently disappeared after Che had proven his mettle as a safe house leader. Each of Che's new comrades rated him as qualified for a leadership or chief staff position. The outsider, 
The Argentine, who had once been deemed unfit for military service by his birth country, had gained the respect of the 26th of July movement. He would be rewarded with a leadership position at the training camp, and later would be given the title of Commandant. The training camp still needed a location, though. Mexico City was too densely populated to complete the type of military training that was needed. One of the members located the Rancho San Miguel that was not only the perfect size and location, but also for sale. The owner of the ranch, however, wanted a fairly sizable amount of money, and while the fundraising trip through the Americas had been successful, it had not been successful enough to provide the funds to purchase the ranch, so they instead concocted a story to sell the owner of the ranch. The story would be provided by General Alberto Bayo. General Bayo was a Cuban-born veteran of the Spanish Civil War. He was also a bit of a military adventurer, having fought against the Moroccan guerrilla leader Abd el-Trim and Franco's Republican forces. With those military credentials in hand, he then trained and advised several different forces around the Caribbean and Central America. Fidel hired General Bayo to teach him and his men the way of the guerrilla soldier. If you want to get an idea of the type of stuff General Bayo taught them, I would suggest reading General Bayo's 150 questions for a guerrilla. It is really quite fascinating if you like military theory. It can be found entirely online, and if you want easy access, I have provided a link to one such location on the Aura of Greatness Facebook page. One example, question 107. Is the purpose of such skirmishes to cause casualties or to cause psychological effects? Answer. Our aim is to destroy enemy morale, keeping their mercenaries from relaxing. If a troop does not sleep during the night, they are worthless during the day and slow in marches. Therefore, the enemy will not be left in peace for a single night. Over the course of the Cuban Revolutionary War, we will see the theories presented in these questions come to life. The influence on Che's own book, Guerrilla Warfare, which will be published after the war and become a guidebook for guerrilla fighters throughout the world, is readily apparent. General Bayo met with the owner of Rancho San Miguel. He fed the man a story that he was just a front man for a wealthy Salvadoran colonel who was looking for a large ranch to purchase outside of his home country. The owner insisted on speaking with this wealthy colonel. That was where Che came into play. With his Argentine accent, he sounded foreign enough for the ploy to work. The Salvadoran Colonel Che loved the ranch, but he had certain specifications that needed to be installed before he would purchase. He graciously offered to pay for his own Salvadoran laborers to complete the specifications and offered to pay rent instead while the pairs were completed. The owner smelled a huge payday and agreed to a token rent of only $8 a month. Just like that, the Cubans had a place to coordinate the last of their training without breaking the bank. With the ranch secured, General Bayo selected the first group of trainees, among them Ernesto Che Guevara. It only made sense to have the medical officer at the ranch given their plan for an aggressive training regimen. However, his medical skills were not the only skills that General Bayo was determined to sharpen. Bayo saw in Guevara a leader and named Che the chief of personnel. Che took to the role like a fish to water. He helped Bayo lead the men on endurance hikes and night marches. He performed his medical duties to keep the men in tip-top shape and participated in the simulated combat drills. The next part of the story is shrouded in a little bit of mystery. There are stories that suggest that possible insubordination or insurgency may have met with court-martial or execution. Any mention of these events are considered taboo in Cuba. The histories in Cuba entirely ignore the events and purposefully leave them unclarified, with the exception of the first court-martial. Juan Almeida, who was a Moncada barracks survivor and another early leader of the revolution, 
Ruthie mentions the court-martial, and it was further detailed in General Bio's memoir. During one of the marches where General Bio and Shea were pushing the men to go further and further, Calixto Morales stopped and sat in protest. He would not budge another step for the non-Cubans. Shea was furious. He ordered the men back to the camp. Insubordination was one of the most severe infractions, as it was seen as a contagious disease. A guilty verdict carried the penalty of death as the contagious disease needed to be exterminated. Fidel and Raul were notified and came immediately to stand as judges. According to the Cuban historian Maria del Carmen, Che actually argued against Morales' execution, despite being the one who had called for the court-martial. Despite the defense, Morales was sentenced to death. Before the execution was carried out, however, Fidel decided to show his magnanimous side. Castro chose to use the whole ordeal as a teaching moment for everyone, about just how important it was to remain loyal and follow commands. The other stories are the ones lacking confirmation, though it does seem likely that at least one execution occurred. Locals living in the vicinity of Rancho San Miguel reportedly told Che biographer John Lee Anderson that three bodies lie buried inside the Rancho San Miguel's walls, though that is a story told by locals who are not allowed inside the compound. One far more reliable source comes to us from Ted Sulks. Sulks was a former New York Times writer and biographer. Fidel's aide, Universo Sanchez, was interviewed for Sulks' biography, Fidel, a critical portrait. In that interview, Universo admitted that there were other trials, and at least one ended in execution. That execution was for an unmasked spy, a far more terrible crime than insubordination. Universo stated that the spy was executed by one of the other rebels and then buried in the field. The final source comes from the book Raul Castro and the New Cuba. This is a newer source than the others, having been published in 2011, and offers an account from Miguel Sanchez, the U.S.-Korean war veteran I mentioned earlier that was hired by Fidel. Three notes for this final source. First, Sanchez would have been speaking over 50 years after the events. Second, after the revolution left Mexico, Sanchez grew away from the Cubans and disagreed with the course of the revolution once it gained power. Third, the author of the book notes how at times Sanchez seemed like an unreliable storyteller during the course of the conversation. Miguel Sanchez detailed how Fidel and Raul picked him up in Mexico City to head to the ranch because it had been discovered that there was an insurgent inside the insurgency. As they were driving, Fidel traded firearms with Sanchez. Once they arrived at the ranch, Fidel called all 60 of the guerrillas in training to attention. According to Sanchez, Che was not among the group, but would be told of the events later that night. After shouting at the assembled trainees and accusing them of the insurgency, one of the trainees appeared to snap under the pressure and began shouting Fidel's name. Fidel pulled the firearm at his waist and unleashed four shots at point-blank range before stepping over the fallen trainee and shooting the man twice more in the head. He had made an example for anyone thinking of becoming a spy, but Fidel wanted to underline his point and launched into a diatribe against traitors. They then dumped the body in a trench and shoveled some dirt to cover it. After sharing the news with Che later that night, Che seemed unimpressed with the whole affair. He demanded they return to the ranch. After he brushed the dirt off the body, he pulled out a surgeon saw from his coat and sawed both hands off the dead man's body. He tossed them into a fire to conceal the identity of the dead further and then dug the hole deeper to further conceal the misdeed. Che was not against the fact that Fidel had shot the man, just that he had not covered his tracks better. With the new burial complete, Fidel switched guns back with Sanchez so that Fidel had his own unfired gun back at his side 
And if they ever found the dead man, they would trace the bullets to Sanchez's gun rather than to his own. Could Miguel Sanchez's story be the same one that Universal Sanchez had disclosed? Were they separate but both true? Had Miguel colored the truth to gassed Fidel in a negative light? Were the locals correct and there were three total executions? Tough to say. As I stated earlier, it is likely that at least at one execution occurred, and if an execution occurred, it would have been ordered by Fidel. However, Fidel is the type to order an execution, but have someone else carry out the ugly deed. He was trying to foster utter loyalty in his men, and in true Machiavellian fashion, a douse of fear would be required to do that. But Fidel was more of the type of prince to inspire through love. He wanted to be the face of the revolution, and the face of revolutionary change. He stood against corruption, and that stance included the necessity of the fair military tribunal, with the separation of judge and executioner. We will learn more about Fidel's quest to shape his image next time, and will further explore the nasty business of espionage once the armed revolution lands in Cuba. For now, let us return to the ranch. In early June of 1956, the first group of trainees completed their training and were swapped out for a second group. Being the chief of personnel, Chase stayed involved with the second group. On June 14th, Chase celebrated his 28th birthday and all seemed to be progressing well until a week later when Fidel was arrested by armed Mexican police in downtown Mexico City. Within days of the arrest, the majority of members living in safe houses in Mexico City were also arrested. General Bio and Raul were alerted to the dangers and were able to go into hiding. At the same time, Che assumed command of the ranch. Fidel was accused of plotting the assassination of President Batista. Havana was demanding for his extradition and was publicly accusing Fidel of colluding with Cuban and Mexican communists in order to achieve his goals. Fidel was allowed to issue a public denial. His carefully worded denial denounced the accusers and pointed to his longtime political affiliation with well-known anti-communist Eduardo Chivas, who had committed suicide in 1951. On June 24, 1956, Fidel traveled with police to Rancho San Miguel. He was determined to avoid an altercation that might make his movement look bad or cost it the lives of good and loyal men. He ordered Che to surrender himself and the 12 men still gathered at the ranch. Che obeyed the order and was jailed at the Interior Ministry's prison for the next 57 days. The official charge leveled against Che was for overstaying his visa. A media firestorm followed the arrests. Che was described as a chief culprit. In a group photo of the detainees, Dr. Guevara is described as the man whose intimate links with communism have led to suspicions that the movement against Fulgencio Batista was co-sponsored by red organizations. By mid-July, all but three of the so-called conspirators had been released. Those three were Fidel, Che, and Calixto Garcia. Shortly after, on July 24th, Fidel was released. Che and Calixto lingered in prison. Throughout their time in prison, throughout their time in prison, Che ranged from being a helpful prisoner to a downright annoying one for the guards. After Fidel was released, time became of the essence. Fidel had promised to launch his revolution in 1956, and if he did not act soon, then someone might strike before him. While Che lingered in prison, unsure of how long he would be stuck, he told Fidel to leave without him. But Fidel promised not to abandon Che. Che would never forget the promise, and later wrote, Precious time and money had to be diverted to get us out of the Mexican jail. That personal attitude of Fidel's toward people whom he held in esteem is the key to the fanatical loyalty he inspires. In mid-August, Che and Calixto were released, a freedom that was evidently bought with a well-placed bribe from Fidel. 
Both men were released under the same condition that all of the Cubans were released, that they leave Mexico. Che's first order of business was to go home. Che's first order of business was to go home to Hilda. During his incarceration and training period, he had missed his child deeply, and with the day of departure approaching quickly, he might not have much time before he was gone for good. He spent the next three days almost constantly at the baby Hilda's crib, where he read her poetry or simply watched her in silence. Hilda once observed Che lift baby Hilda out of her crib and speak to her in a serious voice. My dear little daughter, my little Mao, you don't know what a difficult world you're going to have to live in. When you grow up, this whole continent, and maybe the whole world, will be fighting against the great enemy, Yankee imperialism. You too will have to fight. I may not be here anymore, but the struggle will inflame the continent. The next few months passed by fairly uneventfully for Che. While Fidel scrambled to coordinate his army and buy his boat and guns, Che mostly just had to hide out in different small towns until it was time. He went wherever he was told, and he waited. The moment it finally felt real to him was when he filled out his next-of-kin information for who to notify in the event of his death. It was a transcendental moment for him and the other revolutionaries, as they realized they might soon be dead in service to the cause. During the week, Che would hide out. He would then spend the weekends with Hilda. Late October marked the last time the couple would see each other in Mexico. Che was bathing when a couple of his fellow revolutionaries came calling for him. Hilda sent them into the bathroom. The Cubans explained the situation to Che and that the time to fight drew near. He would not be able to leave the safe house on weekends anymore to see Hilda. He came out of the bathroom combing his hair calmly. He explained to Hilda. Neither of them knew for certain that that would be the last time they would see each other for over two years, but Hilda did have a feeling. She squeezed him tight and trembled as they shared one last kiss. Che left that weekend and did not come back. Just over three weeks later, on November 23rd, Fidel gave the order for everyone to meet in Pozo Rico. The small oil town on the Gulf Coast would be the meet-up spot before they would board their ship. Fidel had purchased a 38-foot motor yacht named the Grandma. In the early morning of November 25th, Che and the others scrambled to board the Grandma in the pre-dawn darkness. In all, 82 men and a cargo load of guns and equipment overloaded the yacht before they set sail. They left from the town of Tuxpan, they sailed down the river into the Gulf of Mexico and headed for Cuba. Fidel estimated that the trip would last for five days. It would actually last for seven days, but when they landed on the beaches of Cuba, some of the men became heroes and others martyrs, just as Fidel had promised. Boarding of the grandma marks the end of what I like to call the pre-revolutionary Che. Others might characterize the boarding of the grandma as the death of Ernesto Guevara and the landing on the beach as the birth of Che. However you would like to describe it, I do hope you have enjoyed the series so far. If you have, please do me a favor by rating the show on iTunes and liking the show on Facebook. I cannot describe how helpful that would be to me. I cannot describe how helpful that would be for me. The remainder of the series should get very exciting as we delve into the Cuban Revolutionary War, and you doing your part by rating the show will help me reach more people with this fascinating story. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Aura of Greatness podcast. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so by emailing me at auraofgreatnesspodcast at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter, at TrapStory. Next time, we will be delving into the history of Cuba and discussing the early life of Fidel Castro. We will bring both Castro and Cuba up to the time that the grandma set sail. 
You will not want to miss it, so make sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app, whether that be Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or what have you. Sometime this week, I plan to do a massive photo upload of various Che pictures from his first 28 years of life. If you'd like to see them, make sure you find the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. Finally, if you're looking for a podcast to listen to while you await the next episode, I would highly recommend Daniele Bolelli's History on Fire. He's currently detailing the conquest of Mexico, and the show is just fantastic. All right, I won't take up any more of your time today. So until next time, thank you for listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.10, A War Worth Fighting. Cheers.